Hello, and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. I'm Ryan Holstead. And I'm Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to move along with our breast cancer series, and today move into a discussion on metastatic HER2-positive cancer. So we've been discussing HER2-positive in various levels, you know, both with our most recent discussion on HER2-low disease, as well as in the gastric series. We're going to hopefully overview this protein in a bit more detail today, um, as it is the greatest benefits shown has been in this specific setting, both for metastatic and uh, early stage um, HER2-positive breast cancer. So about a quarter of breast cancer patients have HER2-positive disease, and this historically had a worse prognosis than hormone-positive, although given the many anti-HER2 agents that have been developed over the years, the prognosis has actually gotten much better with an average overall survival of five years. HER2 as a marker was first identified in the 1990s and was found to be present as an overexpressed protein in 20-25% to 25% of all breast cancers. Soon after, um, monoclonal antibodies were developed that were able to target this and were shown to have a significant impact on cells' division and growth. As we've mentioned previously, the HER2 new receptor is a member of the EGFR family, um, specifically ERB2 protein, so EGFR2. This is a protein with no known ligand, and primarily it gets active by dimerizing typically with another EGFR protein. However, it can also homodimerize with itself. Understandably, the more HER2 proteins present, the more chance there is for dimerization, and one of the reasons why these cells that are overexpressing this protein have increased growth and division. The therapies that are available to us come in really four different classes that have had a significant impact on benefit, and it's worth overviewing these now before we move into the individual treatments. The initial targeted therapy, trastuzumab, works by preventing a conformational change. So for this protein to dimerize effectively, it needs to actually have a conformational change. Trastuzumab binds to an area that prevents that from happening without being able to dimerize. This leads to decreased cell growth. There's also thought that having a large monoclonal antibody bound to these cells leads to increased apoptosis as well. Uh, one of the major mechanisms of uh, resistance to trastuzumab is that the HER2 protein can begin to dimerize without any conformational change. And later monoclonal antibodies, namely pertuzumab, were developed that actually block the dimerization domain. So even if the protein is trying to dimerize without conformational change, pertuzumab is able to block this. The more recent developed drugs work in slightly different ways. There's a series of molecules that we'll get into that are specific to the intracellular tyrosine kinase domain. So even if the protein can dimerize, try to activate the downstream signaling area is blocked. And most recently, as we've discussed in our last discussion, are the antibody drug conjugates. These work not by blocking the HER2 protein from activating, but using it as an anchor in order to deposit chemotherapy specifically to these overexpressed cells and other cells within the tumor nearby. Their process known as the bystander. I think it's important to mention, last episode we were talking about HER2 low with the trastuzumab droxetecan. Today's episode, we're mainly going to be focusing on the traditional HER2 positive, so IHC3+, aminohistochemistry 3+, or IHC2+, with the positive FISH, which, if you remember from last episode, was a ratio greater than or equal to 2 and a copy number greater than or equal to 6. We also mentioned last, last episode, but it's also always important when you have a patient with metastatic disease, even if they have a history of HER2 positive breast cancer in the past, it's always important to rebiopsy the metastatic site because about 10 to 15% of these patients could have discordance from their prior diagnosis. So initial evidence in the metastatic space looked at adding trastuzumab onto chemotherapy arms and did find significant improvements in both progression-free survival and overall survival. But we're going to move forward and, and discuss the Cleopatra trial, which has changed 
the standard of care to what we are currently using in the first line setting. So the Cleopatra trial was published in the New England Journal in 2012. It was a phase three trial looking at 808 women with metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer. They also included patients with locally recurrent disease or unresectable disease. And they were looking at the addition of protuzumab to docetaxel and trastuzumab. You had to have an ejection fraction of greater than 50%. As we have seen, trastuzumab can be associated with cardiomyopathy. And this is generally an exclusion criteria for all of the trastuzumab-based or HER2-based drugs. Very, I don't think any of the trials include people with ejection fractions less than 50%. Yeah, and if they had trastuzumab in the past, so in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting, it had to be greater than 12 months ago. Patients with hormone-positive disease were also included. They had to have at least received one hormonal treatment or in the metastatic setting. It's worth mentioning the reason that docetaxel is part of this regimen is that some of the early trials looking at trastuzumab in the metastatic space found that it did not have a great objective response rate giving the anti-HER2 agent alone. And combination with a few cycles of docetaxel, typically six cycles in addition to the anti-HER2 agent, led to a good response, and then the trastuzumab was able to prevent an early recurrence. Giving the trastuzumab alone could lead to improved progression-free survival, but if someone's symptomatic with metastatic disease, you sometimes want that initial response to decrease tumor burden, improve symptoms. So in this trial, patients received docetaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab every three weeks, and it was recommended that they received at least six cycles of docetaxel. However, they could stop it when they developed toxicities. The average number of cycles of docetaxel that patients received was eight. The primary outcome was progression-free survival, which was significant with the addition of pertuzumab, 18.5 months versus 12.4 months. So a six-month improvement in progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.62. There was an overall survival benefit seen at eight years of follow-up. This was published in The Lancet in 2020. Overall survival is 57 months versus 41 months. So about five years average overall survival in the experimental group. It's worth mentioning that this trial was stopped early. It had had a very significant improvement in progression-free survival during the interim analyses. And due to this, the control arm was a mask and patients were given an opportunity to receive the active arm. There was initially some criticism of this at the time because it had not yet shown significant improvement in overall survival. But I think this is one of the examples where using progression-free survival was a practical surrogate in the setting where you see about a six-month improvement in progression-free survival from two active, in addition of an active drug. The subsequent publication in 2020 did show that this overall survival did demonstrate a statistical significance of follow-up, and this even was including the patients who had law of crossover, which might have diluted the extent of benefit with the addition of pertuzumab. So looking at the toxicities, one of the well-known toxicities of pertuzumab is diarrhea, which was seen more often in the experimental arm, 57% versus 46%. Febrile neutropenia was more common at 14 versus 7.6%. In terms of heart failure, um, all-grade heart failure was more common in the pertuzumab group with 8.3% versus 4.4%, although grade 3 or higher wasn't uh, much more common, 2.8% versus 1.2%, so not... Not very common. I think it's worth discussing the cardiotoxicity with trastuzumab. It's worth contrasting this to an anthracycline-based cardiotoxicity. Typically, these are temporary effects. They're usually acute. It's very rare to have a chronically arising cardiomyopathy maybe you know months or years after completing trastuzumab, unlike with the anthracyclines. 
Given the efficacy of all of the HER2 agents, it's definitely worth having a discussion with a cardiologist or if you're lucky enough to have a cardio-oncologist because you definitely wouldn't want to withhold these agents, potentially life-saving agents from patients due to asymptomatic decrease in ejection fraction. So at least worth a discussion with the cardiologist to see if it's possible to rechallenge. Yeah, medications such as ACE inhibitors, beta blockers can be very beneficial in the space when administered by an expert. Yeah, it's definitely challenging if you have somebody that has severe heart failure because, like Ryan said, every single anti-HER2 agent has not really been studied in um, patients with an ejection fraction less than 50, so it can be very challenging to manage these patients. Thankfully, it's a relatively rare. You know, we're talking about 5 to 8%. The vast majority of people, once they get on maintenance, trastuzumab and pertuzumab have quite tolerable side effects. Once in a while, you'll run into someone with very severe diarrhea. That can be problematic. Many patients have excellent responses to these agents. So once you discontinue the Taxol, the recommendation is to continue with the trastuzumab and pertuzumab until progression or unacceptable toxicity. But some patients can have very long-lasting responses. And I think that's a question that's coming up now is, is there appropriate time to stop these agents or do you just keep going? Um, is there a role for a treatment holiday or just stopping the agents altogether? But that's a question that's still being investigated. It's also worth mentioning that these are long infusions. So we're talking about palliative therapy and the IV infusions of trastuzumab and pertuzumab take a few hours and having someone come in every three weeks for you know, spending half a day in the office is, is not negligible. There's been attempts and there are some treatment options out here now um, to give these medications as subcutaneous injections, which can certainly save a lot of the infusion time burden on the patients. And in the United States, these often require insurance coverage and not, a lot, not all patients have access to them. But certainly be mindful of what's available in your location if you can give these as a sub-Q injection after, after patients have had a few treatments. And for those patients that are hormone positive and HER2 positive, so what we call triple positive, there is still a role for endocrine therapy. We usually start that after we stop the chemotherapy. So after you would stop the docetaxel, you can add endocrine therapy with the trastuzumab, pertuzumab. One important thing to be aware of is that one of the exclusion criteria for this trial was uh, CNS metastases. And neither of these agents penetrate the blood-brain barrier. Having spoken to providers who've been treating breast cancer for a period of time, the, until recently, we really did not have great anti-HER2 agents for CNS per, um, to prevent CNS progression. Often that was the point of failure that we'll see. Many patients will have a prolonged good disease control in the visceral organs, but then we'll have a very acute, sometimes catastrophic progression within the CNS. This has been known for a long period of time, and there was a lot of interest knowing should we be doing an upfront MRI to screen for these brain metastases. The the earlier clinical trials, which were really early to early 2000s, 2010s, did not show an improvement in patient outcomes by doing an MRI at the time of diagnosis, primarily as there was a low rate of CNS metastases in otherwise asymptomatic patients. And even with, when metastases were found present, we did not have systemic therapy options available. We'll be getting into it a little bit on some of the newer agents that are coming out. That's led to this question being opened up again. And there are ongoing clinical trials seeing whether or not earlier detection of CNS metastases can be acted upon in the era of more efficacious CNS systemic therapy.
So to just kind of summarize, the Cleopatra regimen, which is trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and docetaxel given every three weeks, is a well-tolerated, very effective medication that at the time of its publication has shown overall survivals being similar to those of our hormone-positive patients. If patients are hormone-negative, you would just give these two as maintenance. In hormone-positive patients, there's some question about whether or not adding a, adding an anti-hormone therapy along with your maintenance regimen will be effective. After patients progress on this, we have what is considered to be a very crowded space. And what I mean by that is there's many agents that are that have come out, both anti-body drug conjugates, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Many of them have been developed in short succession, and there's not a great answer to which one to give in the second line, third line, or how to sequence these. The good news is there's many effective options out there, and I think over the next five to ten years, we're going to get better and better at demonstrating how these should be sequenced. But we'll try to go one by one right now. I think the next one that would be logical to talk about would be TDM1 or trastuzumab emtansine. Yeah, so until very recently with the Destiny Breast 03 trial, which we'll speak about with trastuzumab, drexotecan, trastuzumab and emtansine has been the standard second-line option. So TDM1 is an antibody drug conjugate that targets HER2, and it uses a chemotherapy emtansine, which is a microtubule inhibitor. So TDM1 got approved after the publication of the TERESA trial. When you read about this, it's actually TH, the number three, R-E-S-A, but I'm assuming that's said as TERESA. And this was a study looking at TDM1 in the third-line setting after progression on two anti-HER2 regimens, one being trastuzumab and the other being a lipatinib-containing regimen, which was standard at the time. And patients were either randomized to a clinician's choice chemotherapy or trastuzumab emtansine TDM1. This study showed an improvement in progression-free survival, 6.2 months versus 3.3 months, and an improvement in overall survival, 22.7 months versus 15.8 months. Typical toxicities with this medication are going to be fatigue, nausea and vomiting, thrombocytopenia. A rare but serious toxicity of this medication, which is worth being aware of, is nodular regenerative hyperplasia of the liver. So this drug can actually lead to cirrhosis in a rare number of patients. So anyone who has significant hepatic impairment at baseline would not be a great candidate for this medication. The Theresa trial did show a good progression-free survival compared to chemotherapy alone, and this led to it being compared directly to lipatinib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor targeting for HER2, um, and lipatinib is typically given alongside capecitabine with or without uh, trastuzumab. And it did find that trastuzumab emtansine did have improved um, overall survival with fewer adverse events compared to capecitabine lipatinib. The median over survival is 30.9 versus 25.1 months and fewer toxicities. And the major toxicity, which we'll get to in a moment with the TKIs, is diarrhea, which can have a significant effect on quality of life. So we have a drug that improves survival, has better toxicity. This quickly became considered standard for second line in patients after progression on a trastuzumab or tuzumab regimen. With this now being a bit challenged with the recent uh, Destiny Breast trial comparing trastuzumab durexican to TDM1 in, in uh, the second line setting. This was looked at recently in the Destiny Breast 03 trial, which was a phase 3 trial looking at 520 patients who had been previously treated with the Cleopatra regimen of trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and docetaxel. Patients were either randomized to TDM1 or TDXD, and there was a significant progression-free survival benefit with the TDXD, trastuzumab, drexotecan, 28.8 months versus 6.8 months. They did give a 12-month overall survival which was non-significant, uh, with a 94 versus 86% patients alive at a year time. 
It's important to mention that interstitial lung disease, which is a um, significant complication of TDXD, it did occur in 15% of patients with TDXD uh, versus 3% in patients receiving TDM1. So in this case, we have a drug that does have a significant improvement in progression-free survival. I think there are a lot of questions with this trial. It's, it's definitely too early to make strong comments on the, the difference in overall survival. This was only published in 2022. But I think a, a couple things that I have questions about, of course, this is an international trial. Of note, only 60, 60% of the patients had actually received pertuzumab prior. Most of the patients had received just a trastuzumab chemotherapy containing arm prior to second line. And this would reflect kind of what would be standard of care practices in countries that don't have ex- access to pertuzumab. There's a significantly higher rate of patients who had who had stopped trastuzumab cam. It's worth mentioning also that the post-protocol therapies, there are always a place to look to see are these patients at the time of progression getting what we would give here? And I think it's reasonable to consider that if I had someone on trastuzumab deruxtecan or trastuzumab tadenzine, knowing that the alternative antibody drug conjugate is very effective and the individual chemotherapy has a different mechanism, we could likely switch over to one or the other at the time of progression. And of the patients who received trastuzumab deruxtecan, 16% ended up getting trastuzumab um, tadenzine, so TDM1. 6% of the patients got other agents. Only a total of 30% of patients on trastuzumab deruxtecan did end up getting a post-protocol therapy, though, which may reflect um, the degree of toxicity at the time of development of pneumonitis or otherwise. Of the patients who were on TDM1, 60% ended up getting a second-line or third-line therapy. A quarter of these were just trastuzumab alone, 10% were trastuzumab deruxtecan, and 28% were other agents. The reason why I point that out is, you know, we certainly do have an improvement in progression-free survival, but this is a drug that's adding toxicity, not lessening it, um, different than our TDM1 versus lapatinib comparison. And I think it's, I think there's certainly some equipoise to which drug you would use in your second-line setting currently. What we really need is a clinical trial that would show patients either get trastuzumab deruxtecan or TDM1, and at the time of progression, to get the alternative agent to really see if one improves survival over the other. And this trial did not really show that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. When you first look at the trial, the PFS benefit of 28.8 months versus 6.8 months, you know, really made me and I think a lot of people really kind of look to TDXD for a second line. But again, if we don't know if, you know, if the sequencing of TDM1 with TDXD next line would be equally effective without worrying about ILD in the second line. I think that's definitely something worth considering. And obviously, if you have anyone with any baseline lung disease, I think looking to TDM1 would be the obvious choice. There are three uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors approved for metastatic breast cancer. Tucatinib, which is the most recently one developed, neuratinib, and lapatinib. They're all oral agents. Tucatinib has inhibition of HER2 and less potency against EGFR. Lapatinib is a dual TKI that's selective for HER2 as well as EGFR. Neuratinib is an irreversible oral pan HER TKI, which, um, you know, the different mechanisms of actions can explain some of the differences that we see in side effects. The initial agents that came out were lapatinib and neuratinib, and I think there was a lot of questions of which ones to use at the time of progression, which one was better than others. Speaking to providers in general, lapatinib was a bit preferred, just given the lesser diarrhea, but I think that discussion is becoming less so now with the recent evidence supporting tucatinib 
as the next agent to use. So tucatinib gains popularity after the HER2 climb study came out, which was looking at tucatinib, capecitabine, and trastuzumab versus capecitabine and trastuzumab. The study was different in that it actually allowed patients that had CNS metastasis. 48% of the patients on the study had brain metastasis. This goes along with the fact that tucatinib does cross the blood-brain barrier. The progression-free survival was longer with the addition of tucatinib, 7.8 months versus 5.6 months. Overall survival was also improved, 21.9 months versus 17.4 months. In patients that had CNS disease, the one-year progression-free survival was 24.9% versus actually 0% in patients on the control arm. This actually included patients with CNS metastases of two centimeters or less and would allow them to start on therapy without addition of radiation and did see an uh, objective response rate in those patients as well. So I think in carefully selected patients, you may even consider with close monitoring, um, initiating on the tucatinib, caseibine, and trastuzumab. Although, of course, if they're having any symptoms of CNS disease or there's concerns about uh, rapid progression, I would still make sure we uh, adequately treat this with radiation prior to initiating on this regimen. Some of the toxicities that we saw with the addition of tucatinib was diarrhea, hand-foot syndrome, nausea, vomiting, um, increase in bilirubin or liver enzymes. can also cause an increase in creatinine, but actually does not affect, doesn't actually cause AKI, but you can have an incidental increase in creatinine because it's decreasing the excretion of creatinine, as well as stomatitis, were the most common adverse events seen in the study. So this certainly is a effective agent, and when up to 50% of the patients um, by this stage of their HER2-positive disease have developed CNS metastases, it's nice to have an agent that has good efficacy within the CNS. In general, when we have a drug class and the patient progresses or becomes resistant, we don't want to continue on the same class. And I think there's uncertainty in what, what role lapatinib or neratinib has at, at this stage. Although these had shown good benefit on patients who progressed after trastuzumab and pertuzumab, with the increasing number of antibody drug conjugates and the superiority of tucatinib for CNS disease, or at least a trial showing that it's effective for CNS disease, I'm not exactly sure where these other two agents would fall into my, my clinical practice. Furthermore, there's more, there's continuing to be more anti-HER2 drugs moving down the pipeline, the most recent one being morgantuximab, which was looked at in the SOFIA trial, also as a later line agent. And I'm sure as, as the years go on, we'll be seeing more and more drugs emerge. Uh, before we wrap up with the summary, I just wanted to briefly, since we've been talking about CNS disease, just talk about the clinical entity of leptomeningeal disease. So this is from, this can happen with any metastatic cancer, but can be seen in breast cancer, typically with HER2 positive or triple negative disease. And this is metastases to the leptomeninges, as the name would um, suggest. This is a radiographic description. Um, the only way to confirm the diagnosis, though, would be with actual positive cytology, often obtained by an LP. This carries a very poor prognosis. Radiation does have some palliative benefit, and there's small studies that have looked at using intrathecal chemotherapy or high-dose methotrexate, which have limited efficacy, typically survivals in weeks to months. This is something you'll run into if you treat enough patients with HER2-positive, triple-negative breast cancer, or just other cancers in general. And it's good to be aware of the signs and symptoms often people progress, present with an acutely changing mental status, possibly seizures. So I know that was a whirlwind of different anti-HER2 agents, but bottom line, for first-line metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer that hasn't received trastuzumab in the past year, we would reach to the Cleopatra regimen, which is docetaxel, trastuzumab, pertuzumab every three weeks. 
Second line, it's kind of up for debate whether you would reach to TDXD, trastuzumab druxotecan, versus TDM1, trastuzumab emtansine, which are both antibody drug conjugates, with trastuzumab druxotecan having a longer progression-free survival, but also having an increased risk of interstitial lung disease, and so far, no overall survival benefit. At time of progression, I would probably switch to the alternate antibody drug conjugate until unless evidence shows otherwise. Um, of course, if someone has concerns for CNS disease, and this should be you know monitored closely at the time of any progression on clinical exam, you may consider to bring tucatinib into the an earlier line. There are other effective TKIs, lapatinib, neratinib. Certainly some patients may be on it if they're initiated sooner. Lapatinib is a generally well-tolerated with similar toxicity profile to tucatinib, and certainly something to consider as well. But I think as the space gets more and more crowded, we'll start to see some agents that were effective not being used as frequently. Also be very mindful as you, as you get someone into later line setting of clinical trials that might be in the area. This is a disease site with a lot of active drugs under investigation. It's very exciting to have a disease that carried one of the worst prognoses of breast cancer to now have similar outcomes to those of the hormone positive disease, but we can still always do better. Hopefully we'll see ongoing improvements in the space as the next 10, 20 years moves forward. On that uplifting note, um, hope everyone enjoyed their weekend. For Marco, it's a three-day weekend this weekend, so hopefully everyone uh, has a good Martin Luther King Day. Stay warm. It's pretty cold out there, at least where we are in the Northeast. Bye for now. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.